The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy and I'm sitting in for Hugh Linehan this week. On today's programme, women in politics and the future of the Labour Party. With me this morning to talk about that are RTE political correspondent Martina Fitzgerald, the author of a new book about the experience of women in Irish politics, Labour Party councillor Rebecca Moynihan, who represents the South West Inner City on Dublin City Council, and my Irish Times colleague Harry McGee. Thank you all for coming in. So first to women. Martina, <laughs> congratulations on your new book, top of the bestseller list and widely acclaimed. You interviewed 19 women politicians uh, for the book. Who impressed you most and why? Or what impressed you about them? That's a great trick question. Um, because if I pick Plenty one, more that came I'm from. going to really annoy 18 others. There are lots of impressive women in this book. But I suppose if you're asking me the ones that really had to face the most challenges, the most barriers, it's those in the 70s and 80s. It's those like Mary Robinson, who was out on the campaign trail, not in 1990 for the presidential election when she swept to success, but actually in the late 70s, early 81, and has to face a barrage from women and men on the campaign trail as a mother because voters didn't think she should be out there. They thought she, she, she should be breastfeeding her child who was just a month old uh, in 81 at home or Nora Owen who had three children under 10 I think it is when she went in 1981 and again she had to worry about the childcare uh, minding uh, when she was going for the doll seat. How many men had to? Or Gemma Hussey, who was literally told, you're taking a man's seat. So this all seems like a foreign country, but welcome to Ireland in the 70s and 80s. And men and women uh, were giving that kind of response to women's doors. And what's really surprising, when someone knocked on the door like Mary Harney, and there's many funny stories about Mary Harney's uh, first election, but anyway... uh, apart from the fact that she was campaigning in the wrong constituency, she didn't realise it, but that uh, when she would knock on the door, uh, this, the woman of the house would come out and say, I'll get my husband, he decides the politics. Now, can anyone here imagine that happening today? That's the way it is in Harry's house, uh, I think. Um, <laughs> God, I, I'd like to stand up for his better half. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, that, that, that comes across is that these attitudes that women politicians were experiencing uh, in, in, in the periods which you talk about, they were experiencing them as much almost from women as they were from men. 
And I'm actually going to be fair here as well. In the media, they were also some of the worst offenders were women journalists in the social media or the social columns. For instance, Maura Gagan Quinn had very long hair and had used to wear high boots and she got lambasted by a woman journalist every week in the late 70s uh, because she believed her hair was too long and that she uh, should cut it because she was too old for that style. It became what she calls a rant. She was fixated on it. And she makes the point that Michael Kitt was elected around the same time as her. And I don't think anyone noticed his hair. Um, but her Lack of hair. <laughs> and uh, no comment. But also uh, that they actually, when she got into the doll, they actually addressed the portrayal of women in the media. And they got a lot of editors to, editors to write in. One wrote in, and this is of a different time, saying... We actually like women draped over a tractor and over a washing machine. It sells more. It looks better. And they effectively felt, as she puts it, that it was a two fingers to the committee. So they printed the letter and he wasn't too impressed. So they got it from every angle. And I have to point that out. One of the things we both worked in Leinster House uh, for, for, for quite a while. But one of the characteristics of the work environment in Leinster House, it seems to me, is that there's always been kind of strong women political correspondents who are uh, who've been writing about uh, politics. Do, do you think that those women political correspondents have been tougher on women politicians? Actually, I think Nora Owen and Morgan Quinn and Mary Harney, they pointed out that it was actually some of the, the female journalists who weren't in political uh, journalism that gave them the toughest or also pointed to the fact that lilac was the colour of the day when they returned to the first day of the, the, the doll. That it wasn't really the women in Leinster House. I think they would say they pretty got it. As Frances Fitzgerald said, if they're going to go for you, they'll go for you. That she didn't feel discrimination in that way, but there were other unconscious forms. But as Sheila de Valera said, uh, sitting in 1977, looking up at the press gallery, there weren't very many women there. First usher. And I had to, if you've read it, you know the answer. But guess when the first female usher came to Leinster House? 1994. I mean, that's not too long ago. And you even describe how difficult, or in the interviews, some of the women politicians describe how difficult it was to find a lady's toilet in. That's right. They had to keep asking their male uh, colleagues who didn't know either. They were tucked away and in the members bar there was no female toilet. Uh, And as Mary uh, Harney said it, and she really says it with punch, the man's was always closer to the action than the women's. (laughs) And also the fact that once Nora Owen was uh, seconding the nomination of Gareth Fitzgerald as Taoiseach and she was in a race to find a toilet and then make it back to the thought. She was really worried she was going to miss her big opportunity. But there is a symbolism attached to that, that they were on the periphery. And this was a workplace that wasn't geared to women being there. There was actually a women's room in Leinster House that had a phone, a couch and a chair and they would sit around. Now you'd ask why in God's carnation would there be that? But because... The members bar was so intimidatory. Uh, people like Nora Owens that she went in with groups of women. They felt it really hard and so did Mary Harney. And these are not shrinking violets. Uh, Mary Robinson said she really frequented it, which we'd all, I suppose, guess. But that when she did, she certainly didn't find it friendly. And that there was terrible comments made to the likes of uh, Nora Owen. And if you don't mind the use of bad language we in don't. Irish Times. We encourage it, frankly. Uh, OK, well, she said, you know, that some of her male colleagues would go, what are you bitches up to over there. Uh, so they had to to uh, to deal with those kind of prejudices, not just on the campaign trail, but when they got in there, it was very elderly, very male and not very welcoming. 
and and quite, although it's possibly beyond the scope of your book, kind of quite, and this may reflect the the culture of the time, but kind of quite drink sodden during the week. Yes, and a lot of the issues that came up in the sexism chapter, um, a lot of those are related to drink. Um, not all of them, though, we should point out. But in the situation where Neil Because Brown, it was a boys' club and the boys were drinking a, together. And also and, they were in the, the, especially the rural TDs, would have been in the Dáil Bar quite a lot. That was their home as one of the uh, of the female TDs found it anyway. But in, in the instance where in the Dáil Chamber that Neil Brannock was shoved and pushed because she couldn't help someone with a constituency issue and her head was banged against the wall and a painting in which he was worried she might have broken the glass um, there was drink involved and you know what the sad thing about this is that the person she said it to a colleague the next morning she said the colleague said don't worry he won't remember it he won't remember it and also at a teacher's conference Gemma Hussey a fiercely strong, formidable woman who was at the fore of the, the Women's Political Association travelling the country with Nuala Fallon and Anne McCafferty and some f- funny stories there but um, at a teacher's conference a drunken teacher came up and grabbed her breasts and groped her. Like, there's no other way of saying that. And she was very upset and went to her room. Yes, some officials came up to her later and apologised, but that man didn't. And I suppose if that happened today, uh, there'd be serious repercussions and there should have been then. It's clearly better for women politicians now, but how how much better? Or, or maybe another way of asking the question is how much farther do we need to go to make political life and representative and, 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 and representative democracy more representative of women? Well, there's three ways of looking at that. First of all, getting elected, getting onto the ticket. We now have gender quotas. We've seen it surpass the 30 mark uh, for the first time in 2016 to 35, but we've had false dawns before. 1992, it's a, it was 20 for the first time, but in 1997, it was 20 as well. And we know that we'll have another, it'll go over the 40% mark for candidates it, past 2023. So that's on the getting elected. While you're in there, Mary Mitchell O'Connor is very honest. She makes the point that she has had some very crude, personally crude sexual language to her in the last few years. And she won't repeat it because it's so disgusting. Um, And others have made that remark too. So it may not be physical, but there are still some types of language that are really out of order. And only now people are realising that it's out of order because France Fitzgerald, when she was a backbencher in the 90s, she pointed out that it would have been a, a government minister, and she was an opposition TD, came over to her in the Dáil Chamber and said something really, really offensive and crude, and she was quite upset by it. He has only come back in recent times, so that's decades later, to apologise. So she didn't forget about it, but, but neither did he. But in terms of the serious business of women having an impact, there's four women at the cabinet table. That's a record-breaking. And if you're looking at uh, Frances Fitzgerald or Catherine Zappone, they're saying the numbers count. And Frances Fitzgerald has said it, and a lot of women, I can tell you, are picking up on it, that if you make a really good point um, at the cabinet table, so you're all surrounded, and uh, this gets a lot of discussion, it's always referenced back to a man who has made a contribution to that point, never to the woman who has raised it. And I can see Rebecca's nodding. A lot of women... In a lot of workplaces, we'll see that, or that the tone in which you're spoken to, and uh, Joan Burton mentions man rage. Rebecca, you're a practicing politician at Dublin City Council. You're a candidate for the general election for the Labour Party in Dublin South Central. What is Dublin City Council like as an environment for women politicians? 
Um, I, I've certainly noticed a difference between, let's say, when I was first elected in 2009 to when I was um, elected in 2014 in that gender quotas came in and there's a lot more women now on the council. Um, like my particular constituency, um, I think there's uh, three women um, and three men that are elected from the constituency and we're much more collaborative in how we approach things. Um, and I think locally we work um, more together. Um, so as opposed to like in in the main full council meetings um it's very much a lot of hot air um i tend not to speak of them that much because everybody gets you know riled up about something um that they've decided to get riled up about and it's showboating within the main council meetings whereas the majority of work takes place at let's say our area committee meeting um or some of our other local meetings um i much more appreciate the more women that are on the council because i think it just changes the tone slightly and I also think that the male politicians have probably become better male politicians as well um, because it is more collaborative of an effort um, on it. So I, I think that's the main difference I've noticed from, let's say, 2009 to 2014. Um, also, when it comes to working across parties, um, I don't think women are as partisan in terms of how we approach So is there a, kind of a specific female way of doing politics that's a bit different to a male way of doing politics? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, and I think you really see it in, let's say, Repeal the Eighth, um, th- that campaign. And like one of your articles was like, you know, there's no leader that's standing out. And I think what you had was a, lo- a lot of women working together, being supportive of each other, but had a task in mind and where they wanted to get to, what they wanted to achieve. And it wasn't about jumping over each other to get there. And I think you saw a very collaborative campaign happen. And then you saw a very positive campaign happen that included everybody's voices in it. And that was a very effective way of doing things. I think when you look at things through the prism of the old politics of how it's done, you know, somebody's performing very well because they've lost their head about something or they're being very loud about something. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've got to achieve results at the end of the day. And you get involved in politics, not just to be heard, but actually to achieve results. Um, And I think the way that women... I certainly know from from my experience in the City Council, it's about what we achieve results as opposed to showboating in the middle of a council meeting, getting a couple of lines in a newspaper or, you know, a couple of people retweeting you on Twitter. That's but not important. Ele- electoral politics mm-hmm. necessarily promotes personalities because we vote for mm-hmm. individuals and that. Do you think if, if is, is that perhaps one uh, or a contributory reason as to the, the, the low representation or the comparatively low representation of women that they're more reluctant to push themselves forward? They're more reluctant to, 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 to fit into those roles that they think, you know, that, well, that no, maybe and men I, are I, more... I think if- one of the big blockers was women getting selected as opposed to getting elected. Um, and I think that came out in 2014 as well, was actually women who were selected did comparatively well in electoral contests. Um, and I think if you go and talk to people and talk to voters, they much more appreciate non-partisan politics where they feel that p- politicians are listening to them. Um, and I, I don't think that that holds true if you're working in a constituency. I, I, I think that if you turn up at a public meeting and you're like, well, this person is a disgrace because they're a member of this party and they did that 30 years, that party did that 30 years ago. I don't think that that holds in electoral politics. I think it's maybe Twitter politics. I think it's maybe social media politics, but I don't think it holds in electoral politics. I I think voters are much more open um, and they're much more collaborative because the old political identities that voters used to hold, you know, I'm a Labour man, I'm a Fianna Fáil man, I'm a Fianna Gael man, 
isn't the same. People are a lot more fluid in their political identity now and another generation are a lot more fluid in their political identity. And I think they much more appreciate when they see people coming together to work to achieve an outcome. And I think the two big referendums that we've had, you've certainly seen seen that and I think you've seen politicians copping onto that. Why don't more women voters vote for women candidates? They do. They do when they're put up. We still have... Actually, there's like, no evidence to suggest that women are discriminated against no, or voters isn't. vote less for women than men. That's been no. political research and that's included in, in it. There I think is you're probably referencing the, the, the Trump victory. because there, the, yeah. there is an advantage to the incumbent. And guess what? The vast majority of incumbents are men. So if, you, if you've been around for a long time, of course you've got an advantage. I, I think if you look at, like, let's say, the Labour Party in 2014 and who survived, um, I remember a couple of party kind of strategists coming back on, oh, there was a women bounce. Um, and I, I don't think that's true, but we were more transfer friendly, so we stayed into, into the race for longer. Um, I don't think that's true. I think the blockage was always in parties um, because parties are very set in their ways about what is politics and it's very set in a different era of politics um, and it's very set in the era of the 1970s and the 1980s that they grew grew up in and came of political age in. Um, I don't think that's true that women don't vote for women. I think women vote for women um, and if you knock on doors... But more of them vote for... They vote for more more men. I, I don't think that's they? true. I, I, I haven't, I mean, seen, I if, haven't if, only if, seen if, any if research represent, like that. But if representation is... But that's overwhelmingly just, male. And but that's selection voters as well. are 50-50. But that's selection as well. Like that that's selection. So we have like parties are struggling to get to 30% of women selected. But is it not true that if tw- women like, voters prioritize women yeah, candidates? Rebecca first stood. Um, I don't know if you stood in 2004 or not, but I mean when when somebody new stands who's a woman, uh, as Martita said, the the incumbent will always get the preferential nod. But then once a woman comes forward and somebody votes for them, and they, they, they establish themselves and they're seen as somebody who's credible and somebody with authority, well, that woman will then be able to attract votes. I think it's an historical thing. We're looking at a, a process where we're moving from a, a, a politics that was dominated by males. I think the difficulty is that people haven't been voting for women because the women haven't uh, sufficiently um, uh, established themselves in terms of... But if women voters prioritised voting for but they, but women there, there candidates, are, there, are there would be more women elected yeah, but than sure, there but are but now. There's no, well, there's no point in voting for somebody anyway. just because that somebody is a woman. I mean, you have to agree with their points of views. You have to agree that the person is a person who represents your interests, a person who's articulate, a person who has the wherewithal. The gender is just one part of that. Well, gender is only a, it's, it's, it's a component part of that. You know, and I mean, uh, a woman might look at the cast of candidates and say, there's a guy there who I think is better than, for me, that's better than all the women. That's part and part, parcel of the process. But at least they will have the choice now because there's more yeah. women on, on the, the ballot paper. Like when Nora Ohm was going for election in 1981, she was the sole woman. Now it would be an exception that there isn't. Par- parties now have to have 30% of women candidates. And I think the result is 21%, isn't it, of, of the doll? 22%. Are, okay, so we're not going to fight over one. 22%. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that signifies that people aren't voting for women. I think it signifies that not as many women are selected. And as Harry says, that's part of a process. We've had one local elections with gender quotas. Then that feeds up then into a doll election. Now we're going to have another general election where women are actually able to see other women who've already done the job and like my constituency is a great example the majority of us um, going for both the local elections and the door are, are, are women and while you know? the party system mightn't be very welcoming to some women 
it's also politics, isn't it? Like, who would want to go for some of the scrutiny that women get, whether you're a journalist? If you go on TV and your female colleague does, I can bet a million dollars they're going to get more scrutiny on TV due to their appearance than you are. Uh, Pat, no offence, but that's just going to be the case it is. And it's not also because of social Pat, media. Pat, Pat's appearance is beyond criticism, surely, uh, Bertina. No comment. I get, but some, anyway. cha- I get some chat about my ties. <laughs> but, uh, Women but, never have to put up with that. I get chat about my hair, actually, or I used to when I had my hair... Oh, woe be the, nice oh, woe be the troubles. You know what, Harry? <laughs> we're we're going to back out of this say. one. Nah. Woe <laughs> be the troubles. But uh, some I, of them are very, very crude, and it can be even about someone's nails. I no, mean, they are. They're, they're, they're really. Fairness, they can be just and actually, Sheila De Valera had. Some, sometimes women really draw attention to their own nails in my reporting experience. But uh, sometimes uh, they don't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also, but it can be about someone's weight. Like Mary Harney's weight was the subject of a punchline in a pantomime. Um, there's not many men that are going to get that and nor should they that is the point um, Mary Harney's the longest serving female TD whatever you think of her politics she's the longest serving female minister and she's the first tarnished she deserves a bit more respect than that and no man's going to get that I want to finish up uh, this this topic by uh, asking each of you a question it's, it's, it's my experience um, that having looked at national politics and politics in Leinster House, that on average, the quality of the average woman there, to the extent we can talk about that, is probably higher than the quality of the average man. There's fewer duffers uh, are, are, are women politicians than are, uh, are men. I think off the top of my head, but there's yeah. lots of guys. Well, what do you think, Harry? Well, actually, first of all, I want to... to um, address something um, in relation to uh, the review of of Martina's book in the paper last weekend, which I fundamentally disagree with. Um, uh, I I thought it was quite um, vicious Mm -hmm. and I thought the premise on which it was based was wrong. And it it, it kind of said that... This is a review by Geraldine Kennedy. Kennedy. Her thesis was that that the the, the women should be viewed at in a, a vacuum. And that none of the extenuating circumstances that apply to being a woman in politics in the 60s or 70s or 80s uh, should apply. Or 90s. Or 90s, all the things that you said out. And then she went on to kind of uh, recall some of the better anecdotes in the book. And I just thought that the, 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 the thesis that she, I didn't agree with the thesis that she had. And I think that she was kind of uh, over the top in the way that she uh, portrayed it. I think things have changed in terms of politics. I think that nowadays, I think you look at a far more equal playing field. I think you look at a work in progress. Um, being a politician is a tough life. Uh, I wouldn't like to be a politician. You, uh, you are on all the time. You have to go to countless meetings where people whinge and you have to look like you're happy to listen to their whinging on for, for hours. You have to travel a lot. You have to go, uh, you have to do a, a lot of work. Uh, it, and it, it, it applies at local level and it also applies at, at uh, national level. It's possibly still um, more difficult for a woman uh, to fulfil that role uh, uh, than it is for, for a man because it doesn't entail a lot of sacrifices, particularly for family life if people have families. Um, that said, I think uh, Phil Hogan, who would not be held up as one of the great modern icons of feminism, did a huge service in 2014 by introducing the quotas and people complained about it at the mo- that time, saying it's arbitrary and you're going Including to get... To- Many of his own part. Yeah, you're going to get token women uh, coming. some women. Some did, but... I think the, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I think that it has brought forward a whole new generation and slate of, of women candidates. I think we're looking at a process that maybe in 20 years we'll be looking at a dole that, that will be, you know, 
maybe more, maybe it'll take a quarter of a century, I'm not quite sure, but that will be, you know, 50%, 50%. I think 50%, 50% is, is what, you should, what you should aspire to because that represents the population and the Doyle, Doyle Aaron should represent the population as a whole, as should, as should the Shannon. So I, I, I think Martina has done a service uh, by, by doing the book, showing the struggles that women have had to endure on top of the struggles that their male counterparts have to endure in the past. So um, that's my, my tuppence word for this morning. Martina? And I paid him that tuppence. <laughs> um, listen, I'm very happy, overwhelmingly happy with the response to the book and great reviews. One, not, but that seems to be out of kilter. And some have said to me it's particularly nasty. Some have questioned, is it there for a headline? I don't know. I'm very happy with the book and I'm very happy with the response from the public and also from all the other reviews and the academics and so forth. So that's life. You put out a book, but I'm proud of it. Rebecca? Uh, just back to your original question that you asked, I'm always reminded of what um, Kathleen Lynch says, and she said she'd love to see um, a lot of mediocre women elected because that will mean that we achieved parity. Um, and I do think that you agree that, that, that women... The women who are coming forward in politics are, are certainly a lot more talented, um, but it shouldn't be a case where you know we have to work harder, faster, and better. Um, and I think Kathleen Lynch um, sums it up. Um, I haven't actually read the book yet. Um, tut, tut. Yeah. Have you I, bought I, it? No, I haven't. No. That's all authors <laughs> care about. Get out. Um, I've been on my midterm break, so I haven't been um, near a bookshop. But uh, when I read the review, um, I did think it was particularly nasty, and I thought it was a review of a book that um, she wanted written, as opposed to a book. That that was written. Um, so it wasn't really a review. It was, you know, this hasn't been written. So I think um, you could probably have somebody else who can go in and write the book that Geraldine Kennedy wanted written, uh, which wasn't that. But I, I, I've heard a lot of reviews about it. Um, one of my friends read it over the weekend and she said it was really good. And, and I do think it's important to show um, an overall view of what happens in politics as opposed to, you know, just the headlines and, 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 and just the, the, the working side of things because it is, it, it's a lot more of an all-encompassing job um, than simply turning up to, I do to, want to, to just your chamber. make one point. I don't have any special powers. I did not hypnotise these 19 women and bring them along and convince them that they should be interviewed and that they should be happy with the end results. They're strong women. They decided themselves. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. And you're welcome back. This weekend, the Labour Party gathers for its party conference in Dublin. It's been a torrid few years for the party since the massacre of its TDs and candidates at the 2016 general election. Since then, the party has bounced along in opinion polls with little sign of a recovery. It's often incidental to the politics of the day at Leinster House. Rebecca... People in Labour often get a little cross with me at my gloomy assessment of the state of the party. How is it on the doors? Has Labour been forgiven for the blame that many voters seem to ascribe to them for the period of austerity? Um, I still think it's like it's it's tough enough, but what's happened is the toxicity has gone. Um, and like I remember 
2016, um, which was really, really tough, um, knocking on the doors. And sometimes you'd be fearful, you know, for, for your safety, for your personal safety, um, really? at the height of everything that was going on. Yeah, like knocking on, rocking up to somebody's front door, knocking on to talk to them about politics is a tough thing to do. And if people are very, very angry, you often get a very angry reception. Did you get a lot um, of it? Got a lot of it. You always get some of it, um, but you particularly 2016 um, got an awful lot of it. And if you remember, it was the February election, so it was freezing cold. It was really, really dark as well. Um, so, so that's a tough thing to do for for absolutely everybody. The toxicity is definitely gone and going. Um, has that translated into a bounce in the polls yet? No, that's not the case. Um, and like I was, all, I always thought. In 2016, it was going to be a long way back. Um, I certainly would have hoped that we would at least be somewhat stabilising um, or somewhat have bottomed out at this stage. Um, that's still a worry. Um, but I do think that the toxicity is gone. And when it comes to both the local election and general election, you're going to be having, to a certain extent, people will be voting on candidates as well. Um, and I think there's a couple of, let's say, strong constituency candidates. We're also having a generational shift um, and that's quite painful to do. Um, but there is a generational shift happening uh, with some very good candidates uh, selected in the local elections around the country. Um, younger candidates selected in the local elections around the country who I think are going to do very, very well. Um, and uh, that's, you know, I, I think maybe the... the the conversation about us will be slightly different in June. I don't think we're going to have a massive bounce back. I don't think we're going to bounce up to 15% by any stretch of the imagination. But we always knew that it was going to be a long, hard way back. Um, if we could get 9 or 10% um, come back in with some TDs that are going to be around for a couple of elections, because that's our big worry, because a lot of our TDs that we elected in 2016, we elected in 92 and 97. So they are coming up to, you know, not having two or three elections in them. So people like Aon losing and, and Jed losing and Arthur Spring losing um, and Kira Conway losing was a big blow to us because they would have been people that would have carried the party torch uh, beyond two or three elections. Um, so it is going to be, it, it is a tough, it is a tough position that we're in. Um, we're squeezed out. When you're down to seven seats, you're also much further down the agenda in terms of people, um, media coming to you, uh, being able to like give your side of the story or to have a Labour perspective on things. Um, but I think if you look at, let's say, what the Greens, the Sock Dems and Labour are doing, I think the Irish Times, like so poll, we're up at 14%. I don't know the exact numbers. But I, I, I do think that slow and steady will win the race for a party with 100 years of history as well. We don't disappear that quickly. Um, and we've very good people involved. Um, and Labour youth and Labour women are particularly vibrant. Um, whether when the public get to see that or not is a, is a different question. Um, but we, are, we do have a particularly vibrant youth section and women's section. So when you mentioned the other, uh, uh, the, the other parties of the left, um, it seems to me that one of the routes back, perhaps the only route back to Labour to critical mass when it comes to coalition making after the next election, possibly the one after that, is some sort of a broad left alliance encompassing the Social Democrats, perhaps the Greens, some of the left-wing independents that in other countries you would expect to be part of a broader Labour Party but for whatever reason have ploughed their own furrow in this, uh, in, in, uh, in this country. I know lots of people in Labour share that view to some extent but there doesn't seem to be any efforts underway 
to build such an alliance. Partly that's because of personality politics, but uh, is that a source of frustration for you or where do you sit on that question? Um, well, I don't, first of all, I don't think coalition building is on the agenda. You know, I, I think that's off the agenda for us for, for a good couple of elections. Um, I, I do think that we work well with, let's say, the Greens. Um, and I know in Dublin City Council, we work very, very closely with the Greens um, in, in terms of... And, and how they have come back is really interesting because they did a very much, you know, a slow and steady build, had a very good local elections last time and ha- elected some very good people. And, like, on the council... Like somebody like Karen Cuff aligns, you know, perfectly with my political worldview um, of the world. Shouldn't you be in the same party then? Um, Red Green Alliance. Yeah, maybe, and and that certainly happened in Germany. Um, but I think in order to do that, both well, all all the parties need to lose the ego. Um, and I, I I think that's a lot lot longer down the road. But the key thing is for parties, it's not about how a political party is doing. It, it's about your politics. And my family aren't involved in the Labour Party. I didn't join the Labour Party because it's pulling on a football jersey like, you know, a Liverpool jersey or a Man United jersey. I joined the Labour Party because they represented my political worldview. And I'm in politics to see my political worldview represented. And I do think that like both the Sock Dems, who we have an awful lot in common with and a lot of ex-Labour people there, and the Greens, there is a political worldview that I'm afraid is being squeezed out of Irish politics. Is it though? I mean, when you look at the, the vote that Michael D. Higgins got, yes. if you look at, you know, many of the things that Michael D. struggled for all his life in terms, say, on the, on the, on the social side, uh, you know, contraception, divorce... Gay rights, abortion—they've all been—they've all been achieved. So, in a way, those ideas have become mainstream, have become dominant. Absolutely, and it's very welcome. But I think if you look at things like that—that that we've maybe pulled back on—we look at things like housing, look at things like public housing, uh, look at things like universality of services, um, look at things like um, universality in the health services, look at things like um, people wanting to send their kids to private schools, um, or where you you. Don't don't have communities that are integrated anymore. You ha- you have you know two different parallel communities living alongside each other. Those things are still there. Those things are still to fight for. I think you have a whole generation who are working in precarious employment, who don't have the security of um, who don't have the security of a pension that our, our parents had, who don't have the security of the the housing situation that our parents have, who don't have the job security. Um, and, and I think those are things that are still there to fight for. And we've actually taken a little bit of a step back in terms of that. There's a generational gap that's happening. Look at the difference between, let's say, how homeowners are approaching the housing crisis and how renters are approaching the housing crisis. And I think there's a real tension that are there. So, yes, elements of the Liberal agenda have been fulfilled and, and those are very, very important um, be, because, you know, that's also a quality of access. But I, I think there are bread and butter economic issues that we still have to address. And, and I think that worldview isn't being represented um, in the way that it, it could be with, like, a strong, you know, Labour Party, a strong Social Democrats and a strong Green Party. Harry? Yeah, I mean, there's no uh, silver bullet and there's like lots of, of issues and uh, the Labour Party is going to have to kind of follow the same route that the Greens did, that Fianna Fáil did after 2011, that Fine Gael did after 2002 in terms of rebuilding. Does Labour understand that, do you think? Oh, I think they, they do. I mean, they have to stay with the leader. I think that's that's number one. And I mean, there's been criticism of the leader and some people have been um, 
kind of waging a proxy uh, 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 war against him. But I think they have to. They stayed with Andy Kenny. I think you have to have consistency. And Brendan, Brendan Howland is there. He's going to bring the the party to to a certain extent. Um, I mean, the, the 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 party has been hit recently by two resignations of high profile councillors in Dublin. Uh, Southwest Martina Janocki and and McDuff and there are some rumblings within the party and the party does need to be uh, unified. I think What's your th- view on that, Rebecca? It's really, you know, really disappointed. Really disappointed to lose both of them. Mm. Um, particularly disappointed about Martina. Uh, I had always thought that Martina would be somebody who could be a future leader of the Labour Party. Um, I think she has you know, great politics, great person and has had a really, really tough time um, where, where where she was elected from 2014 onwards. Um, she's somebody who, you know, absolutely has the grit and the belief system. So, you know, on a, on a personal level and a political level, um, I'm really sad about both of them, but particularly sad about Martina because she would have been, you know, one of my peers and my friends. Dublin Southwest is where you would expect to make gains. I mean, there was a time when the Labour Party had two TDs there as it had. Surely if Labour can't win in Dublin Southwest, constituency, can they win? It's a so, huge worry. Yeah, so it it's, it's, a diff- it's one of our old, uh, old strong areas. I think the, the po- that's, that's, that's a, just going back to the earlier point, mm. that's a constituency that kind of perfectly illustrates, you know, the, the the need for labor or the the, the route for for labor to to broaden its uh, uh, you know to to broaden its base in any other country in Europe Catherine Zappone would be uh, in the Labour Party or in the Social Democratic Party. Yeah, well, I mean, she would, and I think there is there is uh, there, the problem is that there there are a couple of uh, parties of the left that are very samey. I, I find it very hard to distinguish between the Social Democrats and the Labour Party in terms of their policies these days. Except that the Social Democrats seems to have a slightly more youthful uh, um, uh, fervor to it, and and the Labour Party, as uh, Rebecca said, has fulfilled a lot of the liberal agenda. But it's, I think it's probably a little bit too associated with the liberal side, and not enough associated with the things that it traditionally was strong at, and she talked about housing, she talked about inequality, talked about jobs, all of these things. Labour Party needs to get its hands dirty and go back in and do that. It has a very big membership, and a lot of people who support the Labour innately moved away from the party in 2016. A lot of those will come back. We saw it with Fianna Fáil before, we saw it with the Greens. Will they, though? There's no sign of them coming back yet. Not not yet, but we're, we're but what they also need is a local election. I think a local election think is something, something that, that will bolster... a bit of complacency in Labour after 2016 to assume that this would be just like before when Labour went into could, opposition, rebuilt in opposition and... Re- Rebecca would Rebecca be a better place than I am to, 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 to answer that. But, um, I mean, people were accusing Fianna Fáil of doing nothing between 2011 and 2016. Rebuilding is very difficult. You have to get the membership up. You have to start knocking on doors. Have, a, a lot of the work is, is thankless and unseen and you kind of wonder, is it going to yield any results or not? And it's not reflected in the polls now. But I, th- I do think that if they do get the opportunity uh, to run in the local election in advance of a general election, I think that will assist the party considerably because they had a very bad uh, local election in 2014. Uh, it will allow them to, to did as, do as the Greens did in 2014, just to consolidate a little bit, galvanise, get some more seats and put themselves into a position uh, to, to, to launch a bigger campaign. I think they need to be a little bit more brave in terms of taking stances on things because they're failing to distinguish themselves from other parties and from anybody else. It's a much more crowded landscape. It's a crowded field and there are small parties and you hear all the... Talk to the hand, you know. You hear all the excuses. They're going to have to do it. They're going to have to find a way of doing it. You know, Alan Kelly is actually quite effective at doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, maybe Alan Kelly should sit down and give his uh, colleagues 
kind of sotto voce tutorials and how all of this can be achieved. My understanding is that Alan Kelly is not behind the door when it comes to advising his colleagues <laughs> on how they should uh, proceed. Perhaps Rebecca will be able to tell us uh, more about that. But on the point about the Social Democrats, as a disinterested observer, should Labour merge with the Social Democrats? Well, I don't think the Social Democrats want to merge with Labour, you know. I mean, it's it's too... Make them an offer they couldn't refuse. Well, you know, I think Roisin Shortall had a spectacular falling out with the Labour. I think that kind of... This is about personalities, isn't it? Yes, I mean, policies. but a lot, of politi- a lot of politics is about personalities, but there's a fissure there that I think will be very difficult to, to close. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how the, the Social Democrats will do because I think they will probably make a few gains as well. Um, so the Labour Party will have to be looking in front and also looking to the side and looking at the back. So, But I do think they'll make gains. But they, they and, and the other thing is that there is some talk within the Labour Party of them becoming part, a constituent part of the next government. I think that would be a mistake um, because I think that once they did that, they will just plunge themselves back into into a situation where they'll find it even harder to rebuild. I think they need two election cycles at the very least before they can present themselves as a government force in terms of Irish politics. Rebecca, what's the point of running for election, though, if you don't want to be in government? You have to stay in the game, you know. There's, you no, there's no point in, like, shutting up shop, uh, going into government for a couple of years, being overwhelmed by a larger party and then having to shut up shop. I I, I think I agree with Harry. Um, I, I, I don't... I, I don't see it in our future and I, I don't think that we're going to be big enough at, at that state. Now, the important thing, and I, I think one of the things that we, we forget, let's say when we're in government, is um, our, our politics, our, our, our compass, what we stand for. Um, and I think if there's any talk of that, even in a couple of elections down the line, I think we have to be very clear on our agenda um, and not sign up to be voting father for a much larger, larger Fianna Gael um, government. I just, I, I don't see the numbers adding up for that um, after the next election. And I think we need to consolidate. I completely agree with Harry. I, I think there are, are, are certain key things that we need to be a little bit braver on. Um, I think that we need to take um, a much stronger stance on. Um, I would agree things like tenants' rights, for example. Um, I, I think renters are the, the big constituency out there at the moment that are living in huge insecurity. Now, now maybe I'm coming from a very urban perspective, but I represent an urban constituency um, that's constantly changing. And I think we need to be a lot stronger on, on let's say, you know, the rights of property owners um, above the right of somebody to have a home. Um, and I think we need to be a lot stronger and things like that. Um, but, you know, let's see how the local elections go, who come through there. Um, we have some very, very good candidates. Um, like I can think of P- Peter Horgan in Cork, where we came back with um, no county um, city council seats um, in the last local elections. Um, I would be very, and people like Luke Field in Cork as well, I would be very enthusiastic about them to be able to take like a new Labour Party in Cork and, and to see that around the regions as well, not just to be Dublin-focused. So. Okay, well, that's all we've time for this morning. My thanks to our guests today, Martina Fitzgerald. She, author of the book, Madam Politician, available in all good bookshops and uh, possibly some average ones. Uh, Rebecca Moynihan of the Labour Party and our own uh, Harry McGee. Uh, Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.